Acts chapter 20. Last week we saw Paul silenced and sidelined by a riot. Here we see him departing from Ephesus where the riot took place and going around and encouraging people at various sites around the Mediterranean. So Acts chapter 20, notice the key word encourage in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 12. Encouragement is the theme of this passage, the frame around the story that Luke tells. Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So notice the reference to Passover, right? Luke is tying this to the Red Sea crossing, which happened after Passover. In the same way, after Passover, Paul comes to Troas. Verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted or encouraged. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and resurrection. We thank you that you brought your church, your people out of Egypt through the Red Sea after Passover that you brought Eutychus out of death after Passover, that the presence of resurrection power in the church is what enables us to keep going, is what encourages us. So help us to be encouraged this morning by the resurrection power of the Son of God that was manifested at the Red Sea and that was manifested in an apartment building in Troas and is manifested as well right here among us in a rented church building in Gillette, Wyoming. Free us from distraction. Plow up the soil of our hearts that the good seed of your word might land there, take root, and bear fruit a hundredfold, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke memorably tells us in Acts 2.42 that the, the disciples continued in four major things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. These four activities are what the local church orbits around. Here in Acts chapter 20, 
Paul, uh, Luke presents us with the same four items. We have the apostles' teaching. As Paul speaks and goes around with many words, for example, in verse 2, we have fellowship as they come together in Troas for a Christian worship service. We have the breaking of bread at that same worship service. But instead of prayer being mentioned in this passage, Luke has swapped in resurrection. Literally, as Eutychus rises from the dead. But also then, metaphorically as it were, to show us that Paul is heading toward death, that he's heading toward death like Jesus in the power of the resurrection. Jesus' life, Jesus' resurrection life, encourages the church. That's the theme of this passage. You saw the frame as verse 1, verse 2, verse 12 all talk about encouragement. Within that frame, Luke shows us the picture of Eutychus falling out of the window, dying, and then being raised from the dead by the resurrection power of God's Son exercised through Paul. So let's look at these four means of encouragement. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the resurrection. The first one is the apostles' teaching. Paul called the disciples to him and urges them, exhorts them, encourages them. The Greek word could be translated any of those three ways, to encourage, to urge, to exhort. If you notice the word core in encourage, that is the French word for heart, to encourage somebody etymologically means to put heart into them. You give them some heart, you make them hearty by urging them or exhorting them, that is by giving them what we call a pep talk or words that empower their heart, strengthen their heart to keep pressing on in the path to which they've been called. That's what Paul did for the disciples in Ephesus after the uproar had ceased. Then he sails from Ephesus, which is on the coast of Turkey. He sails across to the coast of Greece and he lands in Macedonia. And he goes over that region and encourages them with many words. Now we pastors are notorious for the many words thing. It's well known that pastors like to talk. And Paul, of course, is no exception. He encourages them with many words. This made me wonder. I looked in my manuscripts from Acts chapter 5 to Acts chapter 20. I have written 124,000 words of sermons for you all. That's many words. That's just one portion of one sermon series that's been preached in this church. Overall, of course, they stretch into the millions of words. Luke has mentioned this several times, the theme of many words. Thankfully, his book is not many words. It's a very short book. But he describes how encouragement usually takes many words. Paul didn't just say, Goodbye, friends. May God be with you all. I'm out of here. He went around and did his best to put heart into them by talking to them about Jesus and what Jesus had done. So in Greece, he stays three months and he decides, you know what? I've had enough of it. I'm going to book a cruise. In those days, too, cruises were, uh, were known and traveled on. And so that's what it says. He was about to sail to Syria. So he's in Greece. 
He's going to sail across half the Mediterranean over to the Syrian coast just north of Israel, just north of Palestine. And that cruise was probably uh, a religious cruise for religious Jews making the pilgrimage back to the Holy Land for some particular feast. So a boat set aside just for the purpose of making money off the tourist trade by carrying Jewish pilgrims from around the Mediterranean back to the Palestine area. So Paul is going to take that cruise, and then he comes to his knowledge that his fellow passengers will try to murder him while he's on the boat. When the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail, he decided to return by land. You know what? As nice as a cruise sounds, being on a boat with a bunch of Jews who want to kill me doesn't sound very relaxing. So Paul, though he is, of course, more Jewish than any other Jew, as he brags in one of his letters, he nixes the plans to go on the cruise, and he goes back by land. So he walks back up through Greece to Macedonia, to where the coastline almost joins with Turkey, and he gets essentially to Philippi, which is close to the Turkish coast, verse 6. But Luke tells us that Paul had this team traveling with him as he returns by land. He decided to return through Macedonia by land, and he had seven men with him, and they're all named for us. Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. Now, who are these people, and why does Luke tell us that Paul had seven traveling companions? Well, part of it is the theme of encouragement through fellowship. Paul was going to book a Jewish tour boat, and then he said, not worth my life. I'm going to travel instead with seven Christians who will encourage me. Now, this is Luke's theme of encouragement that we've already seen brackets the passage. Paul was seeking encouragement, and so he travels with seven Christians. If you want to be discouraged, go out and immerse yourself in the world for a little while. Listen to the talking, the complaining, the curse words. People go on and on about how horrible everything is. Paul didn't want to do that. He wanted to be encouraged, and so he travels with seven team members. Nothing encourages a Christian like gathering with other Christians who work with him for the kingdom. Now from Paul's letters, we know that probably these seven guys were representatives of churches in three different areas. That's why Luke tells us where they're from. Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Asia. Three different regions corresponding to Greece, Macedonia, and Turkey. These men from three different regions are traveling with Paul to bring a monetary gift back to the Jerusalem church. Luke doesn't make a big deal out of the gift. He mentions it in chapter 24. But these men are going with Paul as representatives of the Gentile churches to come to the Jewish church in Jerusalem and say, we love you guys, here's a gift. Paul has these traveling companions, the 17 members. They come with them to Philippi. Then from Philippi and Greece, they sail across back to Turkey and they land in Troas, which is on the far European end of Turkey, very close to Philippi. They sail across, they land in Troas, 
and they stay there for a week so that they can participate in Sunday worship. There they gather for all-night fellowship. They start at the end of the day when people's work day is over, and they pull an all-nighter because they love being with each other so much. Now again, Luke is talking about the joy of fellowship. Have you ever stayed up all night with friends? I know that probably some of you have. The typical time to do that, in my experience, is the night before graduation. My brother graduated yesterday from my alma mater. It's fun to be able to tune into his graduation and see some of the old faces there. But many of my friends said, hey, we have no more schoolwork. Let's pull an all-nighter and spend time together. I didn't participate, but here, the whole church in Troas comes together to participate because that's how much fellowship means to them. An all-nighter listening to Paul speak? Yes, let's do it. That's what the Troas church says. So they come together on Sunday. Luke tells us that. He doesn't say, and you should too, because he doesn't have to. He's telling us what the apostles did. And that example is an example to us of what we ought to do. Just as he told us in chapter 2, the early church continued in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and so should you. He doesn't have to add the, and so should you. You should be able to pick that up, that that's what he's implying as he describes the practices of the early Christians He's telling us that these should be our practices. They gathered on the first day of the week, as we do too, in imitation of this example. So they came together to break bread. They gathered on Resurrection Day. Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and here, 25 years later, on the other end of Turkey, God's people are gathering on the first day of the week. So they gather. And they're listening to Paul. Now Luke weaves this journey theme through. Paul is ready to depart the next day. So he speaks till midnight. They come together for the breaking of bread. What is the breaking of bread? Well, they didn't just come to watch a loaf of bread get broken in half and then set back on the shelf and you go back to your whatever else you're doing. No, they came to eat together. That's what the breaking of bread means. We talk about the best things since sliced bread. The New Testament doesn't mention sliced bread. It mentions broken bread. You just tear it apart with your hands and eat it that way. That's what they came together to do. They loved eating together. In those days, as far as we can tell, two practices that the church today engages in, the fellowship meal or potluck and the Lord's Supper, were rolled into one. Now, it's hard to imagine for us what it would look like to have the Lord's Supper as part of the potluck. But the early church probably did that. So they gathered for a potluck and for the Lord's Supper, but they don't do that right away. They came together to break bread. That's the purpose of the meeting. But Paul starts talking. And pretty soon it's midnight and they haven't eaten yet. Now Luke just leaves the story there for a minute. And he moves on to tell us this. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Now why does he stop to tell us about the light fixture situation? 
People drive themselves nuts about this. Several say, well, the lamps were really smoky and that made Eutychus sleepy. Or, because it was so brightly lit, Eutychus was very sleepy. Which in my mind makes no sense. Like he would have been less sleepy in the dark. <coughs> and others say, well, there were no street lights in those days. And so when people were coming, they brought lamps because they knew they would have to walk home in the dark. And so they were well prepared and they all stashed their lamps in the chamber so it would be well lit. Luke isn't telling us that this about the lamps so that we can know about the street lighting situation in Troas. Luke is telling us this because he has a theological point to make. And what is that theological point? Well, it's simply a point about worship is not entertainment. If you go to be entertained, what is the lighting scenario? Stage lights up, house lights down. Stage is brightly lit so you can see what's happening on stage. Room is dark so you're not distracted by the behavior of all your fellow concert patrons, theater patrons, etc. Luke is telling us the church is not entertainment. You go to the theater, you go to the concert hall, house lights are down. You come to church, house lights are up and stay up. Now, I realize that that's not always true, that there are many churches today that treat worship like a concert and turn the house lights down. I would go to this verse to say, the New Testament says otherwise. Keep the house lights up. Churches should have lots of light fixtures and keep them on. A church building should be brightly lit like a gas station because we are here to worship God. You're not here to watch somebody on stage worship God. We all worship God together. The activity is not on the stage. The activity is in the whole room, and so all the lights need to be up. That's Luke's first point. And then his second point is that Jesus is the light of the world. That's the other reason the church should be brightly lit. We are not a secret society. We are not an organization that tries to hide what we're doing we believe that Jesus is the light of the world. And so we reflect that by meeting in well-lit buildings. The word lamp that Luke uses appears a couple of other times in the Bible. Once in Genesis 15, when the lamp passes between the cut animals while God makes a covenant with Abraham. God portrays himself as that lamp going between the animals to promise Abraham, if I break my covenant with you, may I be destroyed like these animals. And then the word lamp appears the second time in Scripture in Exodus 20, describing the lightning on Mount Sinai as God gives the Ten Commandments. So clearly for Luke to use this word lamp that has represented the presence and power of God twice in the Bible, here he uses it a third time to indicate God is here. Light is here, and that light is not just physical light, though it is that, but it is also the light of the world. So Paul speaks a long time in a well-lit room. Everybody's waiting on dinner. Eutychus oh, is starting to really fade in the window. In fact, what is Luke telling us? He's in the window. Hmm. Why is he in the window? Why doesn't he sit in a chair? 
like the rest of everybody. Or stand on the floor, and the answer is the room is crowded. And also, they're in an upper room. Upper room, where have we seen that before? Oh yeah, in Acts chapter 1, as they're gathered in the upper room after the resurrection, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So to these people in Troas, they're thinking, whoa, we get to be like the early church. Now we look at them and say, you're 25 years out, you are early church. They looked at themselves and said, oh man, the early church, the glory days, that was long ago. That was two and a half decades ago. We are the mature church. This is the church all grown up. We're not a new movement anymore. So they're thinking that, but they meet in an upper room. And where is this upper room? Well, it tells us that it was a third story upper room. In Roman Asia, typical house was one story might have a walkout basement if it's built on a steep hill. But you would almost never, just as here in Gillette, you would almost never see a private home with three stories. They just weren't built that way. So if you're in the third floor, you're not in a private home, you're in an apartment building. And many apartment buildings have a common room that is available for the tenants to use. Now, we stayed in an apartment building last summer in St. Louis, rented an Airbnb there, a nice 30-story building or so, and the entire top floor was given over to common space for the tenants. Very nice place. Well, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of place where this church is meeting. They're going back to the early church, meeting in an apartment building, in a common space. And by the way, Paul is not there saying, we should have a fundraising campaign so we can build a church building and get out of this apartment building. He wasn't speaking on a building drive. He had better things to talk about. They were excited to have an upper room that they could meet in, even if it wasn't theirs. This rented apartment building, this borrowed apartment building. So they worshiped like the early church. Eutychus gets sleepier and sleepier in this crowded room where so many people are gathered to hear Paul, and suddenly he falls asleep, and as his body goes limp, he tumbles right out of the third story window, hits the ground, and dies. What is Luke doing? A lot of people have said, well, Luke is warning us against sleeping in church. Don't sleep in church. It's not what Luke is doing. Luke has already, as I mentioned, referred us to Passover in verse 6 and said this is a Passover event. Following Passover, Israel leaves Egypt. They come to the Red Sea, and there they cross the Red Sea. And when do they cross the Red Sea? They cross the Red Sea at night. When does Eutychus fall out of the window? Oh, yes. At midnight, Paul goes on and on and on and on. And Eutychus falls down dead at midnight. Paul goes down, falls on him like an Old Testament prophet, embraces him and says, don't trouble yourselves, his life is in him. Now we would probably say, oh good, he's alive. Paul raised him from the dead. And his parents brought him in alive, verse 12. They brought him in alive. But Luke doesn't go straight to verse 12. Instead, he goes to verse 11. Paul raises him from the dead. Now, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. Now, why does Luke shove the story of the rest of the worship service 
in between the mention of Eutychus being raised from the dead and Eutychus being brought in alive. And why does he mention Paul's travel plans in between, again, the raising of Eutychus and the bringing in of Eutychus? And the answer is that all these things go together. They're one story. And that's why Luke tells them as such. What is the story? Well, the story is that nighttime is the time of darkness, the time of the power of death. Water in Scripture represents chaos, the forces that are opposed to God, the power of death. We saw that immediately before they go into the sea. What do the people say to Moses? Are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? The people reference death in the context of going into the Red Sea. And of course they reference Egypt as being the place where there are no graves. We've talked about this a lot. What is Egypt most famous for? The pyramids, the graves, these giant tombs that have sat there for 4,000 years and look likely to sit there until the end of time. And Israel says, are there no graves in Egypt? Yes, there is nothing but graves in Egypt. Egypt is the land of death. And the Red Sea is the Sea of End, so-called in Hebrew, literally. The place where you meet your end. They go down into the waters of death at midnight and come out at daybreak. And Eutychus does the same thing. He goes down into death at midnight. But Luke deliberately refrains from him being brought in until morning, till daybreak, and then they bring the young man in alive. Why? Because he's trying to tell the story to make it sound like the Red Sea crossing. Israel goes into the sea at night, comes out at dawn. Eutychus goes into death at night, comes out at dawn. And then what happened next? Israel comes out on the far shore of the Red Sea, heading toward Jerusalem. What stands between them and Jerusalem? The mountain of God. The sand, the desert. They have to cross through this territory, which is death's other kingdom. The sea can kill you. The desert can kill you. And in the same way, Paul, after this resurrection scene, is heading to Jerusalem. Just like Israel at the Red Sea is heading to Jerusalem. So, heading east at sunrise, that's what Israel was doing on the far shore of the Red Sea. Heading east at sunrise, that's what Paul was planning to do as soon as he had raised Eutychus from the dead. And Paul is heading to confront death and resurrection power. The Jews had already wanted to kill him on the cruise boat. He had avoided that one, but he knows that he is going to death. Verse 23, The Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I don't care if I die, says Paul, because I'm walking in resurrection power. And that's why Moses could face the sand. The God who brought us through the Red Sea can bring us through the wilderness. Paul says the God who brought Eutychus through death can bring me through death. Paul has conquered death for Eutychus, now he has to face it for himself. You've been raised with Christ. Death is conquered in your life. Now, you and I have to face our own mortality. We too will die. 
are we ready for that? Can we say like Paul, none of these things move me. I don't count my life dear to myself because I serve the God of resurrection. Paul doesn't fear death. Moses didn't fear death. We should not fear death because we serve a God who brings His people out of death. So the meal has been postponed and postponed and postponed. We dragged on till midnight waiting for dinner. And they finally eat. When he had come up, had broken bread and eaten. Luke tells us in verse 11. Eutychus is alive. Let's eat. Their cue for the meal is the resurrection. Now that's pretty astonishing. Why does Luke tell the story that way? Again, because he wants us to see that the reason we eat the Lord's Supper, the reason we eat together, the reason we have the breaking of bread is because Jesus lives. If Jesus didn't live, we would hardly bother to eat the Lord's Supper. Yeah, we would remember his death, but he's dead and gone. But he isn't dead and gone. He's alive. We proclaim his death until he comes when we eat this meal. So Eutychus dies, is raised again, and then they have dinner. That is why we eat the Lord's Supper. And so, what does Luke wind it up with? At daybreak, they brought the young man in alive and were not a little encouraged. Encouragement in the church is built on the apostles' teaching. It's built on fellowship. It's built on the breaking of bread. But above all, it's built on resurrection. What's the biggest encouragement we have? That God raises the dead. Death is not final. Death is not the last word. God has the last word. And God says these bones can live and will live. Right? Pharaoh's troops on one side, the Red Sea on the other, that's not the last word. God says, let the waters be divided from the waters. And it was so. And through the new creation, God brings his people into life on the other side of death. That's what encourages the church. So if you're discouraged this morning, if you read the news and say, this is horrible, things are terrible, what are we going to do? If you talk to your neighbor, if you look at your bank account, if you go shopping, worry about inflation, and on and on. It doesn't matter what problems you face. If you're sick, if you're dying, someone you love is actually dead. Luke tells us there's encouragement in the church for that. Jesus lives and He brings His people to life. Death is at work in this world. God is at work to conquer death. Death can't win. It's nighttime now. It's the hour of the power of darkness in this world. The Son of Righteousness is coming. And He will shine His light and drive back the darkness forever. The kingdom is real. That's Luke's overall point. The kingdom is real, we know, because Eutychus came back to life. And Paul, after raising Eutychus, went on to Jerusalem in resurrection power to confront death. 
since the kingdom is real, believe in Jesus. He lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to submit to your kingdom. Help us to continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the resurrection. We thank you for well-lit church buildings. We thank you for fellowship meals and potlucks that we enjoy together. We thank you above all that death does not have the final word because your son is alive and the power of darkness must and will be vanquished. Thank you that your kingdom has to conquer because your son lives. We praise you in his name. Amen.